going to try to do the abbreviated version of this. I did want to finish this book this week and not break it into two pieces. Um, but there's a lot of cool things here. <clears throat> so I don't want to just glance over them for the sake of glancing over them either. And man, we got a really cool thing coming up on Wednesday nights. And um, it's going to last for probably, we figured, what, six months now is what you're thinking? Six months to go through the Minor Prophets. And uh, I, I love the Old Testament. And um, Curtis is going to spend six months going through the, the Minor Prophets in the Old Testament. And more of a, he's going to hit some key points, but he's going to do an overview and, and, um, and, and give us uh, bite-sized pieces of, 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 the, of the, the message of the Old Testament prophets, and specifically the Book of the Minor Prophets. And so um, come to that and invite, encourage other people on Sundays to come to that. Here's, here's why it's so cool. Because if you have an understanding of the Old Testament, it unlocks the New Testament in a fresh and new way. It, it'll blow your mind. You can, if, you, if you spend year after year studying the New Testament and never go into the Old Testament and don't have an understanding of the Old Testament, you're not going to get everything that God has for you. And, and your understanding of the New Testament will be unlocked. Your understanding of Jesus Christ will be opened up through this study, through the Minor Prophets. So, yeah. On Wednesdays, yeah, on Wednesday evenings. So, hi guys. James chapter 5 is where we're at. So, let's see. Um, as we get ready to go into this chapter in James chapter 5, um, there are uh, several kind of final points or last points that James in this chapter is dealing with. But the key thought or the main thought that, that all these other points kind of rest upon or center around is the, the, the second coming of Jesus. And... and it's just a good reminder that you can't go to any book of the Bible and, and not find Jesus. Jesus is there. And all of this, this discussion on spiritual maturity, and he's going to continue to have that discussion on spiritual maturity, but it all, it, it, our whole walk centers around Jesus Christ. And, and so as, as these last points that James is making, and he kind of brings a closure to the book, to his letter, his focus is on the second coming of Christ, which is mentioned with an example for us, a mention of the second coming of Christ, and an example for us as believers there in verses 7 to 9, an example for us to follow. Now, if you're going to be keeping notes, there's going to be four major points that we're going to, we're going to look at that James alludes to or that he, that he draws our attention to. And each one of these points direct our attention to an additional attribute of the spiritual mature person things we should be looking for in our own lives, things we should be asking God to develop in our own lives, things we should go, we go, oh, that's what an adult does, spiritually speaking. Well, obviously I'm acting like a kid and I need to knock it off and, and make the decision to, to purpose in your heart to seek God to change you, make you like this. And, and these are, again, these are no easier than any of the other things that James has pointed out so far, but, but um, they're good things. And so they're these, the, all these points direct our attention to an attribute, like I said, of a spiritually mature person or attributes that we can possess. Again, it's not in our own strength, but we possess these as we remain focused daily on the promises of Christ. But, but more specifically, as we see Christ's return mentioned as the center of all this, 
these attributes will be will be grounded in these attributes as a spiritually mature person if we stay focused on the on the fact that Jesus is coming back. Okay? And so in verse one, I'm gonna read the chapter, chapter five, verse one, it says, Now come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Take that in for digest it for a minute. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers, which have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath, You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the earthly the early and the early and latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count on them blessed who endured. You have heard of the perseverance of Job? And seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We'll stop there. Lord, <coughs> I pray, God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon this place. Lord, we know that you've been here through our time of prayer and time of worship of you. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to be here and manifest yourself in power and strength, Lord, through the teaching of your word, through the study of your word. And Lord, as we seek to know you more and know your will for our lives, We pray, God, that you would grow us and change us, make us more like Jesus, God. Let us again be focused on the joy and the hope that you've set before us regarding the return of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that puts it all in perspective to us, that this is just a temporary dwelling place for us. And Lord, that the things that happen here that seem to be so overwhelming to us and and all-consuming in the moment, Lord, truly fade away in the light of eternity and the light of um, your love for us. And so let us see that again this, this, this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, as we look at these first 11 verses, and I stop there because these 11 verses in total reveal a single thing. It re- reveals to us the, the first attribute or characteristic that we're being called to possess or, or in order to become uh, spiritually mature or what a spiritually mature person should possess. And and it's seen in these first 11 verses where James is calling us to have patience when we are wronged. That's a hard one. To have patience when we are wronged. And even unjustly, right? And, and, and this topic of facing trials and the way we responded to them, it sounds a little familiar, isn't it? Because that's exactly how James began this book back in chapter 1 when he told us to count it all joy when you fall into various trials, right? Well, a similar kind of thought here when he's saying, hey, when you're wronged, a spiritually mature person is patient. And, and, and now when James wrote this letter to the church, what we know historically is that the church was being severely oppressed. There in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. And this was before the church 
had gone into like Asia Minor, and, and this was before Paul went out onto some of his missionary journeys. And so the, the, main, the main church at this point was still kind of isolated, and, and these were Jews had conferred, these were Jews who had left their, their, the, the religion of Judaism in order to become followers of Christ. And, and the church, that early church had exploded. Thousands were being saved at one time, right? And, 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 but there was much opposition. There was much persecution, much much oppression, and, and the early church was being severely pressed and taken advantage of by Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. And they were being cast out of the synagogues, just like Jesus said they would. Um, they were being arrested and, and, and put to death. Paul was one of those guys who was doing those things. And, and as a result, many of the Jewish believers whom James was writing to, really as the leader of the church at this time, they had lost everything, everything, for their belief in Jesus. Furthermore, they were, they were um, being persecuted, ostracized, and rejected by their, even their own Hebrew brothers and sisters and even their own, their own family members. Literally, they were, they were social outcasts. Um, there was not a place for them. They were no longer welcome in the, the Jewish society or the culture that they had grown up and were raised in. And, and needless to say, they were being taken advantage of. You know, no one would hire them, no, and then obviously when people did hire them, they were taking advantage of them, and we read here that they weren't getting paid the wages, they were being defrauded, and, and nobody would, they couldn't go to the Jewish courts or to the, uh, to the law, to the to people who were residing over the laws, because they were seen as outcasts. And, and it was a really, really, really difficult thing that was going on as people in positions of power and people, those who were rich, were, were taking advantage of these Jewish believers. And in, in, in these first six verses, James really speaks out against this as he speaks to the church. And he speaks out against this and he condemns the evil things that were being done against these Christians. And he even proclaims a judgment against them uh, on those who had, had done these evil things to these Jewish believers. And in light of this, James identifies, to begin with, four sins. Four sins and explains how these rich oppressors, or anyone who acts like them, are only preparing themselves for judgment. So, and, and truthfully, guys, we can fall into this category very easily here in America because the, the rich that James is talking about is not somebody who's a millionaire, or even who's someone who's a hundred thousand heir, or, or whatever. It's the attitude behind. It's, it's, it's what kind of attitudes do we have in regards to what God's provided us with, right? That's really the, the, main, the main thought that goes along with this. And, and the first of these sins that James was speaking about, identified in verses 1 through 3, could be the sin of gluttony or the sin of hoarding. And, and I know that means a little bit more something different now than perhaps what it meant at this time because we have reality TV shows about people who are hoarding and it's, it's classified as some kind of psychological disorder. You know what the Bible says it is? It's sin. And there's obviously varying degrees of that, but I guarantee you, all, each one of us here, if we looked at our lives, we're guilty of this, honestly, to some degree. And, and, and I think we, we've come to a place of acceptance of it because culturally we don't, we're not... You know, we don't we we look, we usually judge ourselves or we compare ourselves among ourselves, right? And 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 yet God's word says you compare yourself to His word. That's the standard, not what everybody else around you is. And you may be, well, I don't have three storage units. 
Okay, well, well, maybe that's not to the extent that, that we judge ourselves by, but that's still not God's standard. And so and as we look at this, the, the point that James is making in regards to the sin of hoarding or gluttony, what James is making, the point that he's making regarding this person is, is he basically saying this person is one who foolishly stores up and hoards what God has given to them. In other words, God's pouring in and nothing's going out, Right? Or what's coming in is choked so down that it's barely a trickle of what God would have you do with what God's given to you. And, and, and what James is saying is when that happens, it just fades away. Not only does it fade away, it ends up being something that corrupts the person who's holding on to it. You know, the, the, one of the ways that, that the Romans used to kill people is, is if you murdered somebody, uh, I, I, I don't know all the specific details, but lots of times that person who you murdered was strapped to you. And that decaying and dying corcus would be the cause of your own death. Why? Because that flesh, rotting flesh, would be up against your flesh, and your flesh would begin to rot. And, and, and so that's kind of the idea of this, this corrupting effect that takes place when you're just hoarding it all in and hanging on to it, right? And when it comes to piling up treasures for ourselves today... Um, we can be very guilty of this kind of thing, and, and truly, we don't have to look any further than our own closets, to our own garages, guys, maybe even a storage unit, or, or in light of this, we, I think we have to be willing to ask ourselves as we're looking at these things that, that God's given to us, and we have to ask this question, why do I have this? Why do I have it? And, and also, you need to ask, do I need three of these? Or is this something that someone else might need or something else that someone might be blessed with? Right? This is how it applies to our lives. Remember, Jesus himself warned against this kind of a thing. And, and, and speaking about how foolish it is for us to store up earthly treasures which fade away. And he said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on this earth where what moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also you know and this is something that God's just going to be completely honest that God's really been convicting Autumn and I over the last year and over the last year Guys, we're not doing it perfectly, and I guarantee you we're going to have to do it again. But we have literally gone from room intentionally, with purpose, from room to room to room in our house and begin to simplify and downsize and go, do we need this? Is this? And asking these questions of ourselves. And, and you know, we've stored up a bunch of stuff that we're getting rid of or giving away. And, 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 and not storing it up so that we can just keep it in a storage unit or in our garage. But we have every intention of when the weather gets nice, we're going to either sell it all off or, or give it away. And, and, um, and it's more than just decluttering, okay? That's, that's not the idea behind it. It's, it's, it's more than just decluttering and, and, and spring cleaning thing. It's really looking at our lives honestly and what God has called us and living simply, you know, and being content with what we have and going, do we need this? Is this something that someone else can use? Why do we have however many of these things, you know? And if we can't, the idea is if it doesn't, and, and that doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to have stuff that brings you joy that may not just be 
a carefree thing. God does want us to enjoy those kinds of things, but we have to, have to, you have to ask, why do I have this? And if you can't find a real good or godly reason for it, you know what needs to happen to it? It needs to go away. Because James's impression here, or James's words to us tells us, it's going to, it cries out against you and it's going to end up causing a defilement, a corruption in your life in one way or another. And, and, um, James is speaking about that, and he even says that all these things, that that basically what he's saying is is that these things things that these rich people were storing up for themselves, that they would consume them, and not only that, it would be an an evidence, it would be a witness of their selfishness, and it would testify against them on the day of judgment. Now think about that. And this was due to the fact that by heaping up and holding on to the things that God had blessed them with, that they really had not been good, good stewards of what God had given them and didn't use the things that God had entrusted to them in a way that honored God. And in doing so, they had forgotten that God who had given them these things to them would one day ask for an, account, for an accounting. And so guys, do we, do we really have the right to stand before God on Judgment Day where God goes, hey, I gave you some of those things. What would you do with it? And you're like, well, it, it's, it's sat in my garage. And God's going to go, why? And, and, and maybe it's not going to be that petty, and, and I hope it's not that kind of a petty thing, but it's more of the attitude of the heart, right, behind those things and looking at him and going, okay, Lord, what have you given me and what is it for? And what do you want me to do with it? Am I being a good steward or am I just cramming it all in and getting me more and more and more? And here's the deal, guys. Don't look at your neighbor's. Don't look at the people who are sitting next to us in church. God deals with each one of us individually. God gives to each one of us liberally and freely as he sees fit. And it's not going to be like everybody else. The issue is between us and God in relationship to stewardship, right? And us going, God, what is right for me? What is right for me? And what do you want from me? Listen, W. Graham Scroggie, a famous English preacher and Christian author in the early 1900s, he said this, There are two ways in which a Christian may view his money. How much of my money shall I use for God? Or how much of God's money shall I use for myself? How much of God's money shall I use for myself? And the fact of the matter, and it doesn't take large quantities of money to come between us and God. You know, it only takes a little bit placed in the wrong position to effectively obscure our view. So go, I don't have piles of money. Well, that's fine, but where is your pile of money in your life? Where is it? It can be in the wrong place. Now, in in verse 4, James points out the second sin of the rich man saying that he was stealing the wages from the people he hired. And evidently, these rich people had held back wages from these Jewish Christians who had worked for them, and there was absolutely no excuse for this, as clearly this, is, this went well beyond just the societal or, or, or moral right and wrong in, in a societal way. For the Jews, this was a complete violation of, of God's law. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God had commanded against this, and he said, he said, it's not just against your Jewish brothers, it's against anybody. And he said, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of your aliens who is within your land or within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor 
and he has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. And James was telling us, he's telling us that these oppressors were using fraud. He was defrauding, they were defrauding these people and stealing the wages that they owed and those who worked for them. And, 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 and James was saying, this sin's going to find you out. It's going to find you out. And, and the idea behind fraud is there's this trickery, right, where it appears to be right here, but behind the door, it's a deception. It's, and God says, the very wages that you're holding back that make you look so good out here that you didn't do what you said you are going to do, it's fraud, and God sees it, and he knows, and it's crying out to him. And the very wages that they were holding on to or holding back, the wages that they had, had, had stolen, James says they're crying out for justice, and he said, God hears the cry. He knows. In our own lives, he knows these things to be true, too. And when we consider what was going on back then, we have to realize that this warning is something that still applies to all of our lives today and not just to, to those who own businesses and have employees. Again, we're looking at the principle behind it because if we legitimately owe money to someone, you know what, guys? We have the obligation to pay them. That's it. We have to pay them what we owe, including the utility companies, the banks, the credit card companies, or anyone else that we owe money to. We cannot withhold what we owe. And if we're in a position where we cannot pay what we owe because we're spending more than we make, more than we make you know what we need to do? We need to stop it. And I say this because studies reveal, and, and maybe this is more just information for you guys here. I don't know exactly where all you guys are at financially. I don't, I don't keep track of your financial state of, of whatever, but you know what? Studies reveal that most people in America spend way more than they make, and all of you guys know that is like a no-brainer. America is, is known for that, right? And on average, studies report, they say that Americans, on average, this is across the board, from those who, who don't to those who do, they, they figure it all down, and from average, 8%, Americans spend 8% on average more than their annual income. On average. And the fact of the matter is, is if we're a part of the statistic, then we're no different than the fraud that James is talking about here in verse 4. And we're guilty of this sin. And the only way to be different is to start spending less than what we make. Not only in order to be able to begin to pay back what we owe, but also so that we'll stop spending everything that God has given to us on ourselves. If you are spending more than you make the odds are is, is you're not allowing any of that to flow out of your life into the lives around us. Why? Because you go, I owe, I owe, I owe. Off to work, I go. And you got to pay the utilities, and you got to pay all these things, and you have, in, in, in our economy of things, we look at it and we go, well, I don't have anything to give, God. You need to give me more. And that by, that by far defines not only the unbelieving world today but in America, but even Christians. That defines Christians today in America as, as well. And, 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 and spending money on ourselves or spending everything that God has given us on ourselves is the next point that James was making in verse 5. As he points out that the rich man's third sin saying, points out the rich man's third sin saying that they had engaged in extravagant living. In other words, they had stuffed themselves with the pleasures of this life. And um, guys, just, just, just to declare, God did not create all the good things in this life and everything that it has to offer while at the same time forbidding us to partake in them. Does God want us to partake in good things? Yes, he does, for sure. 
But what he wants is he doesn't want us to be wasteful. And that's the idea behind luxurious living. It's wastefulness. To be gluttonous. And stuffing ourselves with earthly pleasures and living in a luxurious way while robbing, ignoring those who are in need is a crime, a sin against God. And clearly this is the point that is being made as these James who, this, these men who James is referring to were, were not only defrauding people, but they were spending excessively and using money that was not rightfully theirs to do so. The money that they owed someone else. Money they were spending on themselves. And, 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 the, and the word picture, I love these verses here in verse 5. The word picture, and even into, into to, yeah, in verses 4, and uh, well, mostly just five, 5 there. But the, the word picture that James uses to describe these men's really a graphic illustration is he's really comparing the way that they were living to animals. Animals that ate without restraint and overfeeding themselves and not even realizing that they were being fattened up for the slaughter. And all I can think about is these feedlots that you see, you know, where, where these animals are basically pinned up and all they do is eat. Just gorging themselves more, 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 more. And I think that's kind of the, the picture that James is, is pointing for us, picture, pointing us to. And I think it's safe to say that this kind of gluttony pretty much describes the American way of life. More, more, and more. I mean, you just walk, whenever, whenever I've been out of country, even in Europe, guys, you go into a grocery store there, you know, you have like one or two of whatever. And we think, wow, I can't believe they live like that. Like one bag, one flavor of chips, you know, or, or you know, they just don't have the, uh, the abundance, the variety that we have here in, in America. And every one of our foreign exchange students, whether it's from Brazil or Spain, and of course when I've been in Africa, it's the same way. That's kind of more of a third world country. But you, you come back here, and, and, and where they may have like one small shelf for chips, we have like four aisles of chips. And we, you guys, I'm pointing out because we think that's normal. And we compare ourselves based upon the, the paradigm that we live in, and, and rather than God's word and the hard issue behind it, and we go, well, it's not bad. I only, I only buy maybe four or five bags of chips every week and, and, and put them in my, you know, and, and, and nothing wrong with chips. I'm just, just using that as an example. But the fact is, is that we in America, we live such sheltered lives, we don't even realize how rich we are. And as a result, you know what? We're, we live luxurious. Why? Because we're wasteful. And I'm not a liberal green piece, you know, that, I'm not I'm going Robin, don't go there. But, but you know what? We are wasteful. And we live in pleasure and we live in luxury and we often, as a result, we ignore those who are in need. Currently, statistics show that the average charitable giving in the United States is a, sh is a, is a shameful and meager 1.7% of the annual adjusted gross income of an individual. 1.7%. It's got to be better, right, for Christians? Right? Because we're called to, like, what, 10% at the... At the Everybody else, like the tithe, right? Yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm going to give 10%. But, but guys, the average, that average of charitable giving among Christians, it's better than 1.7% of the adjusted gross income. It's a whopping 25 
of evangelical Christians who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and say they believe in the Bible, 2.5% of charitable giving of their annual gross income. That's disgraceful. And think God's not going to ask for an accounting? How much of God's money are we spending on ourselves, Or how much of our money are we spending on God? According to a Gallup survey, almost half the total charitable giving in the United States come from households with less than $30,000 annual income. Out of all the charitable giving in the United States, not just to churches, Salvation Army, you, all you think about the nonprofits, half is from households with less than $30,000. And so what does that tell us? As we get richer, we give less. We get greeter. We keep it with the funnel shrinks down. And so in pleasure and luxury, we fatten our hearts as in the day of slaughter. Verse 6. Having fun yet? (laughs) You have condemned and you have murdered the just and he does not resist you. Here in verse 6, James mentions the fourth and final sin, which was injustice. In other words, the person who has used their wealth to oppress the poor. Christians, those poor Christians who had, had also been had, had been taken advantage of by, the, by those who had authority and power and they had been abused and they had been murdered. And, and James said at the end of verse 6 that these Christians and who had these injustices committed against them, of course it wasn't all of them, but James points out that they didn't even resist. In other words, they were, they were leaving these injustices which had been done against them in the hands of God who is the only righteous judge. And um, when we read about this, I think we all have to be willing to ask ourselves, how do we react and stop and, and, or respond when we have been treated unjustly? Do we have patience when we are wronged? Do you just like close your mouth and put on a smile and have inner peace and you, God's got it. No. <laughs> Do we allow for God to be our avenger against the injustices committed against us? Or do we retaliate? Do we seek to defend ourselves? In light of this, we should be reminded of the fact that God tells us, right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay, right? That's a, that's a real famous verse that we like to use. And we kind of deal with that, with that evil eye at that person who we're, we're wanting to... Uh, um, Yeah, put a hex on. You kind of like, venge his mind, says the Lord, and you're like, get him, God. You know, you, you're kind of saying that with a little bit of bitterness in your heart. But um, the fact of the matter is, is, is um, there are many other ungodly ways that we can respond and react rather than vengeance when we are treated in an unjust way. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans expounds on this as he instructs us to leave the retaliation up to God. And I love this because Paul goes on to just kind of detail in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. He says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Even those who do something wrong to me? Yes. Who treat me unfairly? Yes. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, 
As much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Rather, give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And in verse 7, therefore, be patient with that thought in your mind. Be patient when you are wrong, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early, the earlier and latter rains. You also be patient, establishing your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, guys, I'm just going to summarize these last three points. So the first point was what? No, that was one of the sins. <laughs> Is it's the first the first evidence or the first spiritual mature thing that we see here? Point is is patience when we're wrong, and and there's all these other sins in there that we can be sinned against that we just happen to look at in the first person that we should be patient when those things happen to us. But in the in the in the midst of all these sins being committed against these Jewish Christians, there was encouragement that was given to them and is also given to us. And, and it's this promise of, of, of Jesus' return. And so this, this second point that, that is being made here, or, or the, second, um, uh, the additional attribute is, is this perseverance with patience. And we have perseverance with patience when we keep our eyes on the fact that the judge is coming. Jesus is coming. He's going to take care of all. You know, and how many times if we just get our eyes off of ourselves and off of our problems onto Christ, that everything gets put right into its proper perspective, Right? Cling to Jesus, cling to Jesus, cling to Jesus. And that's an attribute of a spiritually mature person. They cling to Jesus and the promises he made and the hope that he's coming back for us. And verse 12 goes on to say, But above all, brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any of the earth, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. An additional characteristic of a spiritual mature person, and we've already kind of dealt with this a little bit, so I don't want to go into it a whole bunch, but is a spiritually mature person possesses pure speech, right? Yeah, I mean, you've all heard a foul-mouthed Christian, and you go, what an immature Christian, or someone who's coarse jesting, or, or whatever, right? We think that, and we've all had that come out, but it's not a good representation. It's an immature thing spiritually to do. And uh, I would encourage you to go read Psalm 15, all right? It kind of talks and deals about that, Psalm 15. And in verses 13 through 18, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs or psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man like ours, or with a, with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and heaven began to rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, the Bible does not ever promise us that we'll have an easy life. You give your life to Christ and it's smooth sailing, right? That's, that's not any promise in the Bible, but it does tell us what to do when trials come. And here in these verses, James gives us some very practical things to do. And I don't want to go through all those things specifically, but seven times here in six verses, James tells us to pray. 
And an attribute of a spiritually mature person is they pray. They pray. When they're suffering or going through a trial, James says pray. When someone is sick, James says pray. When we sin, James says confess our sin and go to a brother and pray. And so on and on and on, what he's telling us is the first thing that we need to do, no matter what you're going through, the first thing that we need to do, our response needs to be prayer. Calling out to God. Going before him. Praying. And in doing so, it's obvious to us that prayer is this, this, this other attribute of a spiritually mature person. And then, then lastly, in verses 19 through 20, James says, Brethren, if anyone, of you, um, anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And lastly, guys, James is telling us that if we're to be spiritually mature, we must be persistent in our pursuit to win people for the Lord, to Christ. That's an evidence. That's an attribute of a spiritually mature person. Are you concerned about the soul and the salvation of other peoples? You see, we can become so wrapped up in our own trials, our own lives, that we forget the needs of the lost and the needs of the other believers who have fallen or strayed away from Jesus. And, and if we truly believe we are seeing the return of Jesus approaching, right, verses 7 and 8, then we should decide, we should dedicate ourselves to telling about Jesus. Why? So that they'll be saved from hell. And a spiritually mature person is concerned about the things of God, the kingdom of God, and the souls of people who are lost, or a brother who is sinning and straying away. So, there you go. There's much more. I would encourage you to kind of break it down and, and read through those last verses a little bit more and, and, and digest it. But, but for now, I'll pray, and uh, uh, Scott will serve us ice cream.